This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And this is a special episode. This is our Patreon episode for the movie, the cover of the movie, Brazil. Oh, yes. Let's dive right in. Oh, my gosh. This was a struggle, dude. This was, this was a, a rough movie to get into. And let's, let's do a quick recap here. Brazil was mentioned in what chapter was it? Was it chapter 29, 30? It was just a, I think such it was a 31, brief, right? It was a brief mention. Like, it wasn't like, even really a mention. It was just that was where the pseudonym Sam Lowry came from. Gotcha. Oh, actually, gotcha. you know what? It was first mentioned when he came to, it was mentioned earlier, but then eventually he mentions both names. Sam Lowry and mm-hmm. Harry Tuttle when he is escaping, because uh, Harry Tuttle was the the name of the fictitious office worker whose cubicle he had the stuff delivered to. Right. So we were and, familiar already with Sam Lowry, and then he brought mm-hmm. in later Harry Tuttle. So when we say he brought in Harry Tuttle, so Harry Tuttle was when? How was that referenced again? He gave himself the name Harry Tuttle as the maintenance tech for escaping IOI. Fascinating. Okay. Okay. So he went from Sam Lowry to Harry Tuttle. Sam Lowry is the name of the employee who he, Sam Lowry is the non-existent employee in an empty cubicle a few rows away from where Parzival was working at IOI. That's where he had the 10 zettabyte flash drive delivered to. Right. Right. He didn't have it delivered to his desk because that would be too obvious. So he did it to an empty desk under a different name. You have the actual book in front of you, right? I do. How does he spell Lowry in the book? L-O-W-E-R-Y. See, what's interesting is that in the movie Brazil, Mm -hmm. it's spelled without the E. Weird. So I wonder if that was a way so that, in case there was an intrepid Sixer agent scanning the names of things, not that I think that would actually happen, but just in case, it's like, oh, well, it's the same name, but it's spelled differently, so it's clearly not whatever. But he didn't change... The spelling of Harry Tuttle, as best as I can tell, nor can I figure out how you would. It could also have been a spelling error in two, in either, in two different ways. Either the website that I'm looking at, which at the, current, at the moment's Rotten Tomatoes, spells Sam Lowry L-O-W-R-Y, whereas in the book it's L-O-W-E-R-Y. IMDb spells it L-O-W-R-Y, so that's got to be... IMDb's pretty accurate. Generally. So, 
Unless there's something that Ernest Klein knows that we don't, then maybe that's a spelling error. I wonder if he did that on purpose so that way it wouldn't necessarily match up with this main character of a movie. Well, I, it, it hasn't mattered anything else. Like I, I, I think from a, a, the standpoint of using this, the idea is he's in this business, in this, this organization, and he's trying to portray it or reflect it as this, you know, giant corporate slavery. I guess, because that's when we talk about the movie and then we really should backtrack here and talk about what the movie is about. But but addressing this specifically, when we talk about his use of these two names, it's really interesting because Sam Lowry is the character that's trying to who, who goes to work for this corporation. It's really like a government corporation, really. It's an information collecting and distributing. This is a uh, torture I mean, center, basically. It, it's the government. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the government, but it's also it's run like a bureaucratic corporate nightmare, right? To say the least. Yeah, I mean it, that's yeah, to define it down to that, that's that's what it is. So a non-existent character at an empty desk next to him for Sam Lowry. That's funny because you rarely ever see him, the actual character in the movie at a desk, and he's often away from his desk, so he's not really doing what needs to be done anyhow. But then when he switches to the persona himself as a technician, Harry Tuttle, well, Harry Tuttle is a character in this movie who is a heating engineer <laughs> yeah. that works like, a, uh, like an assassin or a ninja. <laughs> He's like an assassin heating engineer. And, you know, he, you know, gets in and gets out. That's his thing. He gets in fixes the system, gets out. Sometimes heroes don't wear capes. Right. So let's back up. Can, if you had to describe this movie to somebody off the, off the street who's not seen the movie before, how would you describe this movie? What's, what's, what's your elevator pitch for this movie? I think I would probably describe it in a way, I think it's probably a pretty typical way of describing it. I would describe it as a reimagination of George Orwell's 1984 that focuses more on the bureaucracy of things, like an overuse mm -hmm. of bureaucracy as opposed to the constant watching. Because mm -hmm. I really didn't get that constant watching feel from this movie. It was more like you're just drowning in this endless use of useless paperwork. And there's paperwork for paperwork. And there's all these government agencies that have different roles, but nobody, they all keep pointing at the other one as, being the place you need to go to get the problem solved. Right. It's circular. So if I said, hey, take it to documents recording, you go to documents recording and they're like, you need to take this to reporting. And they're like, I was just at reporting and they told me to take it to you. And they're like, well, that's not my problem. Yeah. Which is something that happens in the movie. It's whatever her name is, the, the blonde lady who kept on getting her hair cut and then growing it. Jill. Right. Jill Layton. That's her name. Played by Kim Greist. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, okay, but so is it just about that, though? I mean, I think if I was going to summarize the movie, I would call it a reimagining of George Orwell's 1984 with a focus on the bureaucracy thing. Okay. It's 1984 with a whole lot more paperwork. Gotcha. <laughs> it does kind of follow the formula, and I know you have not read the book. I have not read the book. But I'm very familiar with the comparison. I understand that when something is spoken of as being Orwellian, it is that it is an overcomplicated system that is complicated for the sake of being complicated. 
and that that is the the insanity the the overcomplication this the circular logic of bureaucracy where nobody takes responsibility everybody redirects everybody to something else everyone has a form to fill out it's as if jobs are invented purely to manage a form you know and forms are invented purely to create an obstacle between something you don't want to have happen and something that you may or may not be responsible for. Kind of like there's this question that comes up. I don't really want to dick with it. So I'm going to have them create a form and that'll hopefully frustrate whoever is trying to ask this stupid question that I don't want to mess with. And then that form's got to go somewhere. So then you've got to, so then you've got to hire somebody <laughs> to manage that form and it turns into its own fucking department. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. So if I had to describe this from a visual perspective, and to me it came off as if I could take office space, and office space had dirty, raunchy, boiler room sex with labyrinth, and those two had a child, and both of them was like, fuck that, I don't want to deal with it, and then created a shitload of paperwork to offload the child. That child would be Brazil. Well said. <laughs> There is this weird level of artistry. There is this pitching back and forth between Sam Lowry, who's the main character that this story pivots around. He is in this bureaucracy nightmare of forms that beget forms. And, and he seems content in it. Yeah, he doesn't want to move up the chain. He's cool where he is. His mom, who's obsessed with getting reconstructive surgery. She, her cheeks pulled apart. <laughs> you know, basically skin stretched across her face. It's this weird obsession like it's as if there's this sort of poignant message to the movie that's set on this gargantuous backdrop that is preaching from a dozen different directions it's that consumerism is bad through you know display of the absurdity of consumerism that corporations are bad through the absurdity of corporations and through the circular logic of corporations that you know the world is in this just horrible place it's it's it's, it's very sort of visually preachy and here you have this guy that's living within it, and he dreams in very unusual times. Like, it's not like you see somebody go to bed, and then, you know, the waviness appears, and then you realize you're in a dream. No, fuck that. The guy could be sitting, cutscene to him, flying through the clouds with these giant wings, like, like a fucking savior angel. Which was so weird. Trying to fly towards this woman. And then fighting that... Iron Samurai guy. Well, which was know, weird. It, it, in, his, in his mind, he's escaping. This is his escapism, and his escapism falls back to trying to save this woman. I don't know if this woman represents something, or if it's just, you know, the girl of his dreams, quote-unquote. So this is actually a very apt comparison to Ready Player One. If Sam Lowry is Parzival, that makes Jill Artemis. Right? Oh, boy. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the problem I had with this movie is that Jill had no depth because this guy who happens to who's, who's uses his job. So he, he gets his promotion. People, his mom is bitching about him for not taking this promotion, not working his way up the chain in the business, in the corporation. Again, with that moving up the chain just to get promoted, just, you know, for the sake of promotion. And everyone wants him to do this, is trying to set him up to do this. Like, to have purpose requires you moving up the chain. So he, he falls and he realizes, after delivering a refund check to this lady whose husband was captured and interrogated and killed, 
but accidentally so because they got the wrong guy. Died in custody. So they charge her for his torture. He goes to deliver a refund check and he sees a woman in a hole cut in the ceiling. So she's living in the, the apartment upstairs. The hole cut was where they dropped down to grab the guy. So he sees the woman and that's, that is the woman of his dreams. I just want to pause right there and say that the part where they came in with the hole filler, that was actually pretty funny. I enjoyed that part. Oh, yeah. Did you sure you got the right guy? Because that's not Buttle. That's, tu- that's, a, that's not a Tuttle. That's, that's Buttle. Oh, no, we never make mistakes. No, but then the repair guys come in with the hole, the thing to fill in the hole. Yeah, they, well, that's what he was, they were saying. Oh, no, 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 they, they never make mistakes. And then they drop the, the, the filler, the hole filler in. And it just drops right through it. Like the, the thing that they were going to use to cork the hole that they just drilled to drop in was the wrong size. Between that part, the, that aspect of it, and the fact that that's like, that they think that that's a, a sufficient way to close up a hole on a floor. <laughs> so I, I, that was one of the parts I laughed at. Well, and I like the fact they were like, they must have gone to the metric system. They yeah. went back to the fucking metric system. It's, it's this idea that the corporation can make no mistakes. But that if it does, it's not their fault. We run into this a few times, particularly with torturing the wrong guy. So it's, it's a love story, but in the sense that it's this dude who has this girl of his dreams that he's lusting after. He sees someone who looks like the girl of his dreams, who does not really look like her that much. Her hair is shorter. And then he, he takes the position in government in order to creepily stalk her to figure out what she does and where she lives. So he's Parzival. Yeah, so he's fucking Parzival. Yeah, he's looking at her file, right? And he's getting into the system, looking at her file. Jesus, there really are some parallels here. Yeah. For this particular chapter. That's, that's, that's kind of, that's fucking When he really dig he deep. Is. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucked up. That's really fucked up. Like, it's almost like he took it right from the movie. That's, uh, so maybe it's it being mentioned and using those names is, it, it may have shaped the chapter a little bit more than I had initially thought. So, I don't hate this movie as much as I did before. <laughs> Yeah, I think I might have to watch it again someday, uh, oh. far into the future, and see what I think of it then. Mm-hmm. I did check with a few people that I know and ask them, you seen mm-hmm. Brazil? And one person said, yes, and they really liked the film. And then the other said, oh, yeah, I know Brazil. It's, it's okay. Wasn't one of my favorites, but it had its moments, which I think is an apt description for it. Yes. <laughs> it's not one of my favorites either. Oh, far, far from it. Far fucking from it. Oh, my God. But anyhow, so he uses his position in government to try and figure out where this girl is and then goes downstairs to the lobby and she's there. So then he kidnaps her in her own truck. Let's call this for what it fucking is. Out of love, he grabs her by the arm, throws her in her cab, gets in the cab, like, fucking go. And she's like, I'm not going. No one touches me. And he's like, I'm sorry I touched you. Just go. Just hit. Like, he knows what they need to do. She doesn't have a fucking clue. This is just this guy that grabbed her, got in her car with her, is now carjacking her, and he's using his government position to carjack her and tell her what to do. It's the start of every great romance story ever. So she she does this clever thing where, where you know, he's like, you know, this sounds strange, but I, I love you, and that's why we need to go now. It's the creepiest fucking writing ever. Creepiest fucking writing ever. Like, this doesn't work at any universe. I don't care what universe you're in. This doesn't work. 
And she's not all for it because she kind of plays it. She's, no, no, you're sexy. You're cool. Here, sit back. Let me take a good look at you. And he kind of pushes himself up against the door and smiles at her. Oh, yeah, you're really sexy. And he goes, wow, I can't believe it. I'm so lucky. And she's like, not really. And then she hits the button that unlocks the door and she kicks his ass out of the truck. Yeah, which was awesome. <laughs> and his, his shit continues to hang on to the truck. And it's only until that she hits the brake and he comes flying over the top of the cab landing on the ground that she kind of, you know, was like, ah, oh, this silly guy. She gets out of the cab and's like, eh, get back in. Uh, it, it's it's mind blowing because it's, it's not there's no relationship. There is no depth to this Jill Layton that he is lusting after. Yeah. And frankly, that kind of persistence wouldn't exactly fly today. I, I don't know. I. I can't think of any time where this would have... Well, think of any situation in... Well, I, I'm speaking in the manner of as portrayed in film, is that I think I think it'd be hard-pressed to portray that kind of persistence today. Oh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely today. So it just struck me as completely odd. But it was just the weirdest Buster Keaton-esque way of trying to express this lust towards this girl that this dude doesn't even fucking know and is trying to get her to whisk them both away to someplace safe or wherever. Uh, it's so so to compare it when we com- when you compare it to the book and comparing her to to um Artemis, I think there's way more depth to Artemis. Oh, for way sure. more no bullshit. There's there's so much resistance to this impression of love like i'm you just think you know me because you saw something that looked like me in a dream i mean she doesn't say that to him but that's what we're talking about and that's similar to what artemis says to parzival you don't know me you just you just think you like me because you saw a girl in vr it kind of reminds me of scott pilgrim yes oh fuck yes yeah yeah but at least scott pilgrim came off a little bit less like at least he tried to smoosh her a little like if, if I sign for this package, will you go out with me? I guess that is kind of... Uh, Scott Pilgrim? Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. So do you want to go out sometime? Um, no, that's okay. You just need to sign for this, all right? I just woke up and you were in my dream. I dreamt that you were delivering me this package. Is that weird? It's not weird at all. It's not. No, it's just you have this really convenient subspace highway running through your head that I like to use. It's like three miles and 15 seconds. Right, right. I forgot you guys don't have that in Canada. You don't remember me, do you? We met at the party the other day. Were you the Pac-Man guy? No, not even. That was some total ass. I was the other guy. You know, you need to sign for this, whatever this is. But if I sign for it, you'll leave. Yeah, it's how it works. Okay, well, maybe... Do you want to hang out sometime, get to know each other? You're the new kid on the block, right? I've lived here forever, so... There are reasons for you to hang out with me. You want me to hang out with you? Um, yeah, if that's cool. If I say yes, we sign for your damn package. So, yeah, 8 o'clock? <laughs> well, but first he, uh, he sees her at the party. Well, first he sees her in his dreams. He see, First he sees her in his dreams, and then he sees her at the party. The bookstore. Well, yeah, but when he talks to her at the party, and he's like, right. uh, am I dreaming? Right. And then he says, right. I think I'll leave you alone now forever. She's like, thanks. Uh, am I dreaming? I'll leave you alone forever now. Thanks. That's one of my favorite movies. That is one of my favorite movies. Absolutely. That is my sick day movie. Like, I go to that movie when I'm, I'm feeling down and out. Did you, did you read the graphic novel? 
I didn't. Uh, you should. It's there's some differences. Okay. Okay. I imagine that they have to be because you know anything. Anytime you cut something down to two hours, you're gonna lose some shit, and some shit's gonna change. I don't know what we're talking about after that, though. I mean, we we can't say that's true for Ready Player One. <laughs> yeah, that shit changed a lot. A little bit. This is a. There's kidnapping. There is assumed torture. There is lots. I mean, the writer of this, Gillian, had a hard on for ductwork. Yeah. I mean, massive hard on for ductwork. Ductwork was everywhere. Nothing was hidden in ceilings. Uh, maybe in between ceilings. Anytime they they cut through to a wall, I, I, it's very bizarre. But they just had this hard on for ductwork. The movie even starts with a commercial for custom-colored ductwork. Ductwork. I know, because that's what everybody wants. I mean, when I say duct, I mean like, not like, like, you know, I meant like air ducts. You know that, but just for anyone who hasn't seen this, I mean like air conditioning ducts. They're all exposed in the buildings. And they're fucking everywhere, like these sort of tubes and tunnels. Like when you're inside of a corporation or a business or even your home, you are kind of in the belly, if you will, of the operations of this system. And you know, the ductworks are evident. It's bizarre. That would be a very long ride on in the elevator, but that's my elevator take of the movie. That's my description of the movie, I think. Oh, we were still on your yeah. description of the movie. That was an old... Yeah. We started that one a while ago. Yeah, we did. So what did you... Before we get into what you did not like, <laughs> <laughs> what did you like from this movie? Like, what was your positive takeaway? When you finished it, you were like, wow, I really dug that. I think kind of like anything Monty Python related, because I've tried mm -hmm. watching or rewatching some Monty Python movies, is that there are these moments that I find well done and funny, mm -hmm. but they're peppered along a long-winded, not-so-funny ride. And that's what this movie was for me, was that there were parts that I thought were hilarious, but there were small parts and few and far between. Like the part with the hole filler, that was funny. And little details, like his mother was wearing a hat that was a shoe. I didn't even notice that. Oh, yeah. I think when they were going to oh. lunch, her mm -hmm. hat is basically um, like a high heel shoe on her head. Like that was, mm -hmm. that was funny. I didn't laugh out loud. I was like, ah, look at that. There were, I mean, that's essentially what it was to me. And there were, you know, some things the that I just kind of noticed or kind of like found a relationship to other things like the bureaucracy of the whole government. And I was like, oh, that could, and like, it reminded me of the Vogons from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right, right. Where it would just requires forms endless for forms. forms and forms. Yeah. And triplicates of forms that like, they'll love their forms. Yeah. And right. But there were like, there were parts that were just like really fucking weird. Like his mother getting her face stretched like, saran wrap oh that just and i'd seen pictures of it when like if you start searching for the movie brazil you will find that image and it is just mm -hmm. creepy looking like what are they doing to mona robinson mm. yeah yeah because that actress played mona robinson and who's the boss right right Catherine helmand right yeah i also thought it was pretty funny that they basically use ipads to order food at the restaurant that is interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't even notice that either. I was just, oh, this is how it went. My daughter and I sat down and said, you got to watch this movie with me. Oh, uh, you subjected a family member that you actually love to this? 
Well, I didn't know that it was going to be torture. Uh, I tried to get my son to watch it, but he bailed out and went to the hot tub. Good for him. So my daughter and I sat down, we popped it in, <laughs> and we watched the movie. And there were just moments where we would look at each other at the same time, and we just had this blink, what the fuck look in our eye. Like, what? what's going on? At what point did this get weirder? It got weirder. We went to weird. It, it, it couldn't get any weirder. You know, when you start with the commercial and then the explosion that kind of nails down the fact that there are terrorists at play. And then we go into Sam Lowry having his, you know, cutting dramatically to him as this David Star Bowie-esque dude with his long, flowy hair and these giant wings flying through the clouds trying to get to his dream girl that, that has, like, these veils across her body. And I was just like, what the fuck just happened? Where are we now? There's no transition here. You're just cutting into his imaginary world. He could just be sitting there doing anything, and he just cuts to his fucking imagination. It's very fucking choppy. I'm actually getting to the parts that I don't like, but well, I'm sorry. What did yeah. you like? <sighs> Initially, when the movie was over, my daughter and I agreed that we had both felt like two hours of our time had been taken from us. Yeah. And the last time I felt like that, strangely enough, was when I watched the movie. THX-1138, um, right? No. This reminds me of when I first watched The Holy Grail. I thought my friends were playing a prank on me. Uh, that was like two and a half hours. We get to the end and I'm like, fucking finally. And then the police come and arrest them and totally break the fourth wall. Or it would seem to break the fourth wall at least. Like it's just breaking, it's meta there, you know, the police come and arrest them. And that's the end of the fucking movie. And I looked and they're like, isn't this great? And I'm like, no, th this is a fucking joke. You've just robbed me of two hours. Is that it? Like y you get robbed and then you've got to rob someone else. I'm like, no, this is funny. This is Monty Python. And I hadn't had any experience with Monty Python. So this was not my, the best experience to have. But I really didn't find the humor all that funny. And that was when they're trying to be fucking funny. Yeah. So in this movie, there wasn't, I, you know, it, it felt more like lecturing. So I didn't find any of it funny. It did have a preachy feel to it. Yeah. Especially it, if you start watching like little interviews from Terry Gilliam talking about the film and what it meant. It does, you kind of get the sense that he was trying to be preachy. Yeah, like he's just trying to communicate. And I, I did, I did watch some interviews with him afterwards. Because what I was really looking for was what, what were some of the hidden themes and meanings? Because if I didn't like the film itself, I could at least appreciate some of the hidden themes and meanings. So what I did like of the movie, after circling back around, is the fact that, well, first off, you have these themes, which is a sort of ridiculousness of bureaucracy, not wanting to sort of take a responsibility. And you have this person who, at the very beginning, he's asked, don't you have any dreams or aspirations or anything that you want to drive towards? He's like, no, especially not dreams. And then he has dreams. And then he realizes that his dream might be real. And this is a shatter from this horrible world that he lives in where he's, you know, doesn't want anything to change because he's just not so he's not bought into it. Like, he's had it. He's, he's sort of fed up with it. And the only moments where he is truly alive in the movie is when he meets people that take him outside of not just the bureaucracy, but the bureaucracy, not the bureaucracy of a business, but the bureaucracy of life. 
Like he hates being around his mom because she's constantly stretching. You know, the doctor's cutting and stretching her face to make her look younger. Or they go to this restaurant and then there's there's an explosion in the restaurant because there's a terrorist that's setting off bombs and killing people. So people die. You know, people are dying right to, next to their table. There's an explosion. And they don't fucking care. And these other gals that they're sitting with that also have like this obsession with different ways of fucking with their face are just they they're not looking at it. They're ignoring it. And so is he. And so is Sam Lowry. To the point that even like the Mater D brings like a folding screen to put between them and the two dozen people on the other side that just got shredded by a bomb. Yeah. Right. And it's this and it's this idea that the bureaucracy of life actually separates you from humanity. And that the only time he's ever really alive in this movie is when he gets in touch with his humanity, either through Harry Tuttle, who is so outside of the system that he is wanted by the government. He is a wanted man. And what he's wanted for is repairing heating and air conditioning systems outside of the business that's supposed to do it because he does it without Without the proper paperwork. Exactly. He just wants to go in and go out, travel. That was his imagination of, you know, the perfect life is the ability to just kind of travel on his own, get in, get out, get it done and avoid all the paperwork and all the garbage. So now he just does that as a rogue. (laughs) He's like this fucking rogue ninja. He comes in with a gun because he knows that central services, which is who you would call for your air conditioning and heating and shit to get fixed, is after him. And so is the government. His interaction with the world where he is the most alive and the most human is when he is with either Jill, whom the perceived girl of his dreams that he finds, or when he is with Harry Tuttle, the in-and-out ninja heating engineer. And it's in those moments where he goes from not being concerned about people being killed in a terrorist blast to later in the movie where there's a blast and he suspects that Jill is the terrorist, that he's helping people out, that he's giving them his coat and he's helping them up and he's being, he's being human. And then he, you know, he realizes them that he assumed she was a terrorist because she'd received this package, but she wasn't. And in fact, what I thought was kind of interesting is like these things that seem more relevant now, which is that, you know, in order for the government to have control over its people, there needs to be something for them to fear. So you almost get the feeling like the people they assume to be terrorists are not the terrorists. Like maybe the government is really the terrorist. And that they're not really concerned about getting the terrorists, they're just concerned about bringing people in and looking like they're pursuing terrorists. But, you know, here it gets to the good part. We love the government, so (laughs) yay government. (laughs) Yay government. But, I mean, like, there was that moment where he's talking to his friend who, or, or, you know, family friend who's the doctor who does surgical work on his mom, and he didn't realize that he was, they call it a information retrievalist. I think was what it was, some, some term like that. Something but like information that. retrievalist is just a term for somebody who tortures someone to get information out of them. So that part where Sam basically accuses him of murder and he's like, no, 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 no. I didn't murder anybody. I murdered the right guy. They gave me the wrong guy. That's not my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my favorite. Of all of this, that was my favorite conversation was he's in that room. He's changed out of his bloody garments. He's in front of one of his three children because he has triplets and he doesn't know which fucking child it is. He calls her by the wrong name constantly. And and he's like, but but 
you murdered a man. You murdered the wrong guy. No, no, no. No, no. I'm, I, I got the right guy. They brought me the wrong guy. I took the right guy in, in good faith that it was the right person, and I extracted information from them. So I had the right guy. They brought me the wrong guy. <laughs> I, just, I was like, and they're discussing this in front of like this four-year-old girl that's like playing on the ground. It, 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 that in that situation, I thought was was uh, maybe if I'd had a giggle, maybe one might have squeezed out of me somewhere at that moment. Like I said, I think it's one of those movies where if you were to go back to it after the fact, after it's simmered a little bit, there might be additional appreciation garnered from it. But mm-hmm. the first time around, it was not that way at all. Man, it was it was disjointed. It was funky. Um, uh, you know, when I left, when I, when the movie was done, I didn't care about any of the characters, not even Sam Lowry. And and this is how I felt very much with um, THX one one three eight. Right. I, you really tell how much I care about that movie because I can't even remember the damn name. I, I, I didn't care about the characters. The only thing I really cared about was I got to the end of the movie and I was like, at what point did this shit become his fantasy? And this is spoilers, but fuck it. If you've not seen the movie, don't. I don't care. <laughs> don't. You don't. At some point, he gets captured because the the girl of his dreams, he realizes the government is after her, and he knows how this is going to work. If they get her, they will bring her in, and they will torture her and probably kill her. So he breaks in to, the, to his job, and he puts into the system that she is dead so that they will not come after her. So they go to his mom's place. They have a bit of a tryst in his mom's bed. This is where shit gets weird. Yeah. They have a bit of a tryst in his mom's bed, and then the government breaks in, and rather than taking her, they go to take him, because they believe now that he is conspiring with terrorists. And they take him back to basically where he worked, back to the organization, or the corporation, the government corporation. And from that point forward, I am not sure where they began torturing him, and everything else beyond that point became an escape. Because they do take him, they do bring him into the seat. The doctor that was his mom's doctor that he talked to comes in in this weird baby mask. I mean, really weird. I mean, that's some fucking creepy baby mask shit right there. That was nightmare fuel. I could, with that, that would be a brilliant Halloween costume. Mm. Because it's, it's, you find the baby mask at a store and then you get the, the doctor thing at your local nursing store and you're, you're set. You are freaking, oh, this is creepy as shit. Oh, just so you know, just so you know, hmm. you can get that costume, that mask or something pretty close to it on Etsy. <gasps> Seriously? At least I found one that looks like that. Oh. It's not quite the same. Well, that's, that's some creepy shit right there. So they, they bring him into, and, and this is interesting because I was, I was listening to the interview and he said that the original room that they were planning to do the torture scene in was a 40 by 40 foot room. And then they went to this power station, this power plant. It was a, like a nuclear power facility. It was a, it was a cooling tower. And he went to go check out this cooling tower and he's like, this is perfect. He decided to change the scene on the fly and use the cooling tower as the scene for the torture. And that's what it is. It's a nuclear cooling tower that they do the torture scene in. 
which interestingly enough had been torn down and turned into an Ikea. So if you go to where they filmed this, you can visit the Ikea that, that is on top of the site where they did the torture scene. Yeah, that's something I, I am not going to put on my bucket list. <laughs> if I ever go to England, that might be on my bucket list, actually. I, I might go to the Ikea store. Get a hot dog? Well, you know, hey, it, they turned that part of the movie into real consumerism. It's true, they did. They, they made a movie about the evils of consumerism, and then they tore down where they filmed the movie, and then put consumerism on top of it. That's beautiful. Anyhow. Yeah. So it's it was hard for me to tell because uh you know he goes to torture him and that's when Harry Tuttle comes in you know basically from the helicopter above they seal team 6 it from above all the way to the bottom and Harry Tuttle with his team of ninja air conditioning engineers shoots the dude through the head the doctor through the head and ends up breaking him out of the building and blowing up the building and then then shit gets weird like at this point it's weird enough but then, like, they're escaping. Harry Tuttle gets, like, paper blown onto him, and the paper starts sticking to him, and more papers blow onto him, and eventually he's covered in paper. And then Sam goes over to help him, and he's just trying to pull the paper off of Harry because he's, like, on the ground writhing, covered in trash, basically. Yeah, that part was weird. Pulls that shit off, and Harry Tuttle's gone. I'm like, oh, maybe Harry Tuttle put, like, a disappearing act or something because he is kind of like a ninja. I think the fantasy started while he was being tortured. You just don't see the right. torture. And then, like, the escape and all the, the SEAL Team 6 guys coming down, that's part right. of the fantasy. That's the yeah, only explanation I, I, I have for it. I, I think it's not, it's not clear, because in, even in his fantasy, he fantasizes again. Because at some point, he sort of blacks out into his imaginary world where he is battling these techno-samurai. Uh, so it's, it's like a dream within a, within a dream. A dream within a fantasy? I don't fucking know. Like, I've got to go back and rewatch this, but it's just so disjointed. And then he ends up going into a building where he is greeted by a maitre d' who then takes him down a, a, a path like in a church to a casket. And the casket is of a woman that was his mother's friend. His mother is... <laughs> his mother... His mother is in that moment portrayed as Jill Layton, the Jill that he's been after, the woman of his dreams is now playing the part of his mom. Yeah, weird. And, it, yeah, like she's been, you know, like the the stretching of the skin has, has brought her so much youth that now the girl of his dreams is actually his mom. And then people break in to come after him, and he falls into the coffin, and falling into the coffin drops him down into the blackness. And then dropping into the blackness drops him into this house that's on the back of a truck that Jill is driving, and then they drive out of the city, to live into the country, and you think for that moment, okay, shit got weird, but it's going to normalize now. He's going to live in the country happily ever after, and that's when it pans back, seeing this little house in the country with a little fire and, you know, the truck off to the side, and then it pulls back even further, and then it pulls back to him in the chair singing the song Brazil, and that's where the, like, I think we've lost him, and saying, I think he's gone crazy. We've tortured him to the point of insanity. And he's pleasantly in this this reality that is within his mind, his illusions. He's in the Matrix. He's in the Matrix, right. And he is singing Brazil. And folks, if that sounds fucked up and if you've not seen this movie, it's more fucked up than that. I left so much shit out. Like I said, someday in the distant future, I may decide to watch it again. But right now, I'm still kind of recuperating. 
like I, I need to I need to go watch something that's wholesome. Like I need to like rewatch Ghostbusters or Back to the Future or just something that gives me the good feels. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, another thing I thought was really interesting was that it was as if technology was geared to separate people from each other, to, to tamper down an individual's humanity. And the perfect example of this was the telephone. They couldn't have a regular fucking telephone. The telephone had like a dozen cables with these quarter-inch phono jacks on the end. And in order to make a phone call, you had to plug the jacks into the right hole on the top of the phone. And there's a scene where he wakes up in his fridge because his heating is gone off the rails. And he thinks that it's the phone that's ringing. It's really the door, but he grabs the phone and he actually, the phone is ringing because it's answered by Harry Tuttle. Uh, But he picks up the phone. He says, hello, hello. And he realizes the cord isn't plugged in. Just picking up the handle isn't enough to talk. He's got to find the right fucking wire and then plug that into the top of the phone in the right fucking hole. And then he's allowed to talk. It's as if the world, the entire world is several levels of complexity uh, in order to make it difficult, in order to keep you disconnected. It's very weird. Yeah, I I don't have much else to say on it other than that. I totally agree with the one review on Rotten Tomatoes that did not give it a fresh score. And the best line from this review, which is by Roger Ebert, the movie is very hard to follow. I've seen it twice, and I'm still not sure exactly who all the characters are or how they fit. I just think that sums it up pretty well, is that it is a little hard to follow. And there are a lot of characters in there that you, you don't know exactly what their role is. And, and he saw it twice. Right. And he's a professional movie watcher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a little bit mind-boggling. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. There are a lot of characters. And a lot of the characters that they focus on, they involve maybe too much. Like, there's too much depth. Like, they are not important enough to have in this movie for the length of time you've got them in here. Like, like the dude that is in the office cubicle, not cubicle, but the office next to him, that where they are sharing a desk through the fucking wall. Yeah, that, that was funny for half a second. Then it was kind of, eh. Yeah, that was funny when I realized that they were sharing a desk through the wall. So for those who have not seen it, sorry, you know, he's he's moving on up and he goes to his his boss and his boss is like behind that door is your office and your desk and your chair. You know, congratulations, you've made it. And he opens the door and his fucking office is as wide as the door. And there's like what seems like half of a desk and a chair neatly behind it with the garbage pail in the chair seat It's like you're in, you're in a closet. You're in a closet. So he goes to sit down and his desk gets smaller. Like somebody, like the desk gets pulled. Like, like somebody, and then that's when he realizes he's only got half a desk. Someone else is sitting at the desk in the room next to him and starts tugging on the desk to get more desk space. So there's like this fucking tug of war between him and somebody he can't even see. It's kind of like sharing the, the blankets with your spouse. Yes. Oh, yeah, I guess that's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Only if, only if you didn't know your spouse and there was a wall between you and your spouse and you happened to share a blanket. But yeah, basically. The one thing about that part that I did enjoy was that it seemed like inspiration for the IOI customer service reps cubicle 
and the whole system for indentured servants. Because if you look at that, inside Lowry's office slash cubicle, you know, there's some posters on the wall that you might have interpreted as somewhat motivational. Mm -hmm. I saw that and immediately thought about that aspect of the book where it really is this drony like situation. You're doing the, in his case, paperwork, but in Parswell's case, customer service stuff. And mm-hmm. it's a semi-sterile, but you get the opportunity to get posters. I found that parallel. Yeah. And the space was only big enough for what you need. It's only as big as a closet. Like that, that is all you need. As a human doing work for this particular job, forget the humanity. We're only going to give you as much space as you need. So to me, it reminded me of the sleeping quarters, the hab thing that he was in. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, basically the the sleeping coffin that he would slide himself into every night. They kind of reminded me of that. The more you fit in, the more people you can have working. Exactly. Efficiency, by golly. To, to sum it up, I saw this movie and I was like, this is absolute shit. Absolute shit. Like, this was a, just a, a horrid turd of a movie. And I hate to be rough because, like, if if the writer of the movie was on now, it would, it, would, it would pain me to say it, but it'd be like, this is just the worst writing, the worst relationship communication, and the most preachy. There's nothing subtle about this and maybe people would go well that's the point is that it's so over the top that it you know it screams this this uh, satirical take on on bureaucracy and consumerism and this need to control people with fear and people who don't question their job they just do their job and, I, and I'll be honest with you, like, if there's anything that, that struck a nerve with me, it's that. I hate working with people who just do their job, particularly if you're working in a situation where you have to solve problems and they just email you back a stupid question, even though they have full access to the answer themselves, but they just email you back a, a question with what sometimes I assume is the desire to put me off or delay me enough to tire me out. To make me not want to come back to them. You have just described my entire career. What? Do you mean like what you do? It's what I do. <laughs> I deal with contractors who, whose the suspicion is that they basically have people trying to figure out what questions to ask the architect mm-hmm. if, for no other reason but so they can have a justification for getting more money or mm-hmm. if, just to like wear us down. It feels like that sometimes, like, like there are situations where, uh, and I'm in a similar situation as you, I'm also an architect and I have to ask questions of people in other countries and other departments. And it'll be like, Hey, you know, what about this thing? They'll come back and say, well, we dealt with that and you'll need to talk to this person. Well, okay. I, you know, day later I talked to that person. They said to come to you. Well, here's a spreadsheet. And I'll open the spreadsheet and I'll be like, that is not what I asked for. This is what I asked for. And they'll ask a completely different question. They'll take like five words to do it and it'll be nothing like what I wanted. And it's just, it's just this, you know, uh, it's as if you're talking to somebody who, who is accountable for a certain number of emails that they have to answer. 
but there's no accountability for the accuracy of them solving a problem in doing it. It's just uh, you have to have so many emails or so many fixed problems per day and somebody who just doesn't care about the point behind the job. They just want to meet the numbers. And sometimes I feel like with a few of the people that I deal with, that I'm dealing with people who are just meeting numbers and they're doing everything they can to not do their job and doing everything they can to just meet numbers. It's corporate drones, kind of. Yeah, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. And luckily, I work with a lot of people that don't do that, that actually do care. Uh, but occasionally, you run into one that's just basically pushing numbers. And uh, it's, it is uh, mind-numbing. And this movie was like that, or exemplified that fact. Um, so maybe that's what I related to. That was a good way to wrap up this episode. Yeah. So uh, I, th- this has been rated as a 98, as a fucking 98. Folks, 98 on Rotten Tomatoes, okay? There were 47 reviews. 46 of them were fresh. One was rotten, and that was a professional reviewer. We're not even talking about the audience score of 102,780 user ratings on this damn movie. It got 90% audience score. 98 is, you know, sometimes we say that when the reviews come in really low that that's criminal. This being a 98 is criminal. You know, even Terry Gilliam said that when this first came out, people walked out of the theater. He said, some people liked it, some people didn't. He said, that's okay. That's how this kind of thing works. Just to put things in perspective a little bit, if we're going to use Rotten mm-hmm. Tomatoes as the barometer of choice, in 2018, there were some movies that came pretty darn up there in rating. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to go through what I believe is their, the top 100 movies of 2018 and their ratings. Number one was... You're not going to go through all 100, are no, you? No, just a few select ones that we've actually heard of. Oh, okay. So Black okay. Panther came in at 97. Right. So that means Brazil was better than Black Panther. Oh. Mission Impossible Fallout was a 97. Uh. A Star uh. is Born, which is a movie that people have just said was fucking amazing. I haven't seen it yet. Right. 90. Wow, not as good as Brazil. Not as good as Brazil. Incredibles 2, right. I haven't seen it yet. 94. I have. Wow. Wow. Not as good as Brazil. Not as good as Brazil. And right. let's see what else do we got here. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie, RBG, 95%. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen it, but. Not as good as Brazil. <laughs> clearly not. So, you know, I'm just going on and on here. And I, I'm scrolling through. I have not seen many of these movies. So I'd like to see the top rated all time mm-hmm. movies just to kind of get a sense of what else there is. Well, anyway, I think we get the point. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. So, so interesting. Let me, let me bring out some interesting points here about the movie itself that I thought was kind of neat. I, I was kind of wondering myself why the theme song Brazil. And an interesting fact that came up was that the song Brazil became U.S. propaganda back in the 40s. So the idea here was that FDR had this sort of good neighbor policy, which involved Brazil's president. I'm going to pronounce this horribly, but uh, Gutilio, 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 Gutilio Vargas. Let's just say Gutilio Vargas. And he was wanting 
to regard America as a friend. So they had this song written up. It was it was incorporated evidently into Disney in some way, but this song came up and a, a number of people covered it. But the gist here was that it was in a way to try to get the American people to see Brazil in a more positive light, but that the song itself was created as a point of of U.S. propaganda to manipulate people from the government level down to get people to change their perspective of another country. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating because, you know, when you talk about how people are changed, you know, from a, from a large perspective, I mean, that, that is technically what propaganda is. Like corporations will try to drive you to change the verbiage that you use in order to recognize a different brand that they're going with when they're redefining their brand. Well, you know, we had that sort of thing. I worked for a, a manufactured home company and we weren't allowed to use the word trailer. It was manufactured home. All right. And then it went from manufactured home to just home. Like, how is this different from anyone else's home? We're just going to use the word home. Don't say manufactured home. But it's funny because when we made the websites on the back end, we still used trailer as a search term because we knew our customers were using that term still. Well, you have to. That's the whole point of SEO. Well, fine. But, you know, it's just that weird circular logic. We're going to try to change their mind. But we're already going to admit from the onset that we're going to fail, and then we're going to put ourselves in a position where we don't admit to using that word, but we're going to try to attract people who do. I think it's a case of you cater to the the lowest common denominator. Yes, I, I get that, and that's fine. I just – it was, wasn't the lowest common denominator, I might add. It was the most popular fucking search term, but – it was more a matter of the company trying to appear above and beyond the standard of the people who had uh, were really looking for a trailer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, I it, get you. It, it's like it's like being a taco a fucking taco company, and somebody just wants a fucking taco, and you're like, "Don't call it a taco. Call it a gold delicious wrap. It's now called the gold delicious wrap." I just want a fucking taco. Everyone wants a taco. Why, when I look for taco, it tells me to come to you. It's not a taco. It's a gold delicious wrap. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So I was just scrolling through some of the uh, IMDb trivia about Brazil. Mm-hmm. I just came across this thing that I thought was kind of fun. The samurai sequence yeah. apparently was originally conceived to reflect Terry Gilliam's love for Akira Kurosawa films. Now, do you remember what Kurosawa is? Was this mentioned in the book? Yeah, that's the name of Daito and Shoto's ship. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. It, it's, I totally missed that, but good catch there. Fantastic. Uh, what is that reference? That's the director, Akira Kurosawa. He was, the, he was oh. the really famous Japanese director. Right, right, right. Okay, I'm looking that up right now. Well, what films did he... Oh, okay. Well, what films did he do? Do you know? Japanese films that we probably wouldn't know. Oh, okay. Okay, so the gist is he did screenplays and directing of his, of his own stuff. Because I'm seeing here that he's kind of on par with Steven Spielberg. We spoke about Kurosawa at length in the chapter with the Battle of Frobaz. Okay. I, I forgot that at length. So that's why it hit me from left field. But okay, that makes sense. And uh, I get that. And I could see that inspiration. But I mean, it was, you know, it was a giant samurai warrior with like microchips and resistors sort of plastered to the armor. A really weird sequence. 
Yeah. And you know what? The introduction of that sequence was choppy at best. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just so disjointed. Like he would he would be in the middle of fighting the corporation police, let's say. And then in the midst of fighting them, he would have a hallucination of fighting the samurai guy. And he'd have a full-on battle with samurai guy. But then he'd snap back into reality, and not a moment had passed, and he wasn't really fighting anyone while he was imagining this. They just jumped him at that point. You know, it's almost like he had a five-minute daydream in the midst of just the moment before he got tackled by the corporate police. Just fucked up. Just just weird, weird writing. Very disjointed. Anyhow, so, yeah, I thought it was interesting that, that the song itself... Uh, done a number of times, covered by a number of people, and originally brought in as a, a piece for U.S. propaganda that the, the film itself is hinged around. When he is in his little car and he's listening to the news and there's another terrorist bombing, he switches the channel and you hear, again, the song Brazil playing on the radio. And then at the very end, when he goes crazy, he is singing the song Brazil. And And maybe that's because the song itself as a reflection of U.S. propaganda, had been aired and played so many times that it was sort of integrated into society in these little points, these clever little plot points. And then at the end, that's him reflecting what the government has told him is a better place, which in his mind, that's where he is, in a better place. Yeah, which sounds like that's better than actual life, if you subscribe to that matrixy theory. Yeah, yeah. He is actually with his, the girl of his dreams. And, and... And that is not how the movie was originally supposed to end. The studios wanted it to end like 15 minutes earlier. And this is this is kind of a neat sort the of American fucked up thing. Yes, yes, the American studios. So it was Universal Studios. And they had a contract with him that the movie is supposed to end. I think I said that at two hours and five minutes was the max length, I think. Yes, that that is what was written into his contract. It could be no longer than two hours and five minutes. This movie is two hours and 23 minutes long. And so not only did he go over contract and get in trouble with them for going over contract, they wanted to cut the movie down and trim it in such a way that the end was not him going crazy in that torture chamber. They wanted it. They wanted a happy ending. It's as if this movie was this weird, surreal reflection of what he was going through with the studios at the time. And thing is, I feel like there's been something else that we talked about where a movie's end was changed so that it would be more of a happy ending. Oh, now I remember. It was Clockwork Orange. We talked about that, how there was a chapter of the book that was taken out from the American release because American Mm -hmm. audiences want the happy ending. Right. And in the extra chapter, it is not as a happy ending as the American version of the book was, and I think the movie, I forget how the movie ended. It's been too long. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's a good example of how the story was changed in order to pacify the audience rather than telling the story. And I loved at least how Terry Gilliam put it, which was, I don't care if they're happy about the ending. I want a satisfying ending. And then the other thing was that I, I was reading the same thing that you were, I guess whoever at Universal was saying that this is his first film 
it's not like Steven Spielberg came to make the four-hour movie and convinced me to make it a four-hour movie. It's just Terry Gilliam. It's Terry Gilliam. Who cares? Yeah, Terry Gilliam's no no Spielberg. He, you know, Terry. It was basically this guy's proven himself, but this guy hasn't. This guy can dictate the time. This other dude can't. Yeah. And you have this sort of, I want to say arbitrary. I'm sure it's not necessarily arbitrary, but when you really step back, you go, what's an, what's an additional 17 fucking minutes, right? Yeah. It mattered what, to what's them. What's the difference in everybody's walking out within a half an hour anyway? Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, so it, there were at least some, some interesting nuances to this. It wasn't thrown together. It was well thought through. It's just that the mind of the man whom it was thought through from was weird. Yeah. It was very, very strange. So consider this a PSA to not watch the movie unless you really, really need to watch it to take notes for your own Grail Diary. You know what? Got such a high rating. I had a friend of mine. I said, said, this is a horrible movie. You should watch it. And he was like, what? You just said it was horrible. I was like, no, 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 it's good. You should watch because that's the kind of guy. That that is the kind of asshole I am. Uh, (laughs) I'll get somebody else to watch it just so they'll come back and go, that sucked. I'll be like, I know. But you told me to watch it. I know. I just can't believe that that the two random people that I work with that I asked, did you see this movie and what did you think? One said they actually like it and they want to watch it again now that I had mentioned Mm -hmm. it. And the other said... Yeah, I saw it. You know, wasn't my favorite movie, but it had its moments. I, my friend Trey watched it. I got convinced him to watch it by telling him it was good, even though I had told him initially it sucked. And he watched it. He said, I really liked the movie. So I actually enjoyed it. So my feeling here is that maybe I am so disjointed from this film and my expectations that maybe, maybe uh, I, I am in a different universe than everyone else. Thus, I would recommend that everyone else go and watch this movie and maybe tell us what you think. But with hundreds of thousands of reviews from the public, 90% came back with positive reviews. I'm absolutely scratching my head as to how that's even possible. But I'm totally open to the fact that maybe this is so beyond my taste that I'm missing something, that I'm not experiencing something that everyone else is experiencing or 90% of the audience is experiencing. Does that make sense? And maybe whatever that piece that's missing is, if I could actually get that back, maybe I'll actually understand Monty Python better and I might actually enjoy some of it. I liked some of the other Monty Python stuff and I'm in the same boat with you. Uh, I, I liked uh, The Life of Brian I thought was great. Life of Brian, I enjoyed more of it than I think I enjoyed Holy Grail. Yep, yep. But it was similar to this in structure where there were good parts peppered throughout something that was like this long string of things that Mm -hmm. weren't as funny. Yeah. Very dry, very dry. And sometimes maybe too forced. Yeah. Or sometimes you have to like, you almost have to look too hard at it to find the funny Mm -hmm. or maybe it's just that it was really dated humor. I don't know, but I had, I think I watched that in two separate sittings, maybe three. Mm -hmm. The first episode of Monty Python's flying circus Half an hour long show, I watched 10 minutes at a time. Right. Because right. it, it was putting me to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I get it. All right. Have we reviewed this into the ground? Yeah, we've talked about it for about half the length of the movie. So I think we can, uh, I think we can wrap her up and um, move on to the next movie. The next, the next, 
potential shit show that this book introduces into our life? I would say that some of the best stuff is coming up because in a few chapters worth of references, we get to watch Mm -hmm. Red Dawn. Man, it's been a while since I've seen Red Dawn. I didn't even think about that. On like Red Dawn. I love that movie. I can't wait to rewatch it for this. Are we going to watch the new one no. too? We, no. we should watch them back no. to back. Just nope. the old one. We should watch it back Just to back. Just the old one. But anyway, this has been a good review. I feel like I feel like we have we have truly milked the Brazil for as much as it's worth. We have pinched off as much Brazil as we possibly can for this afternoon. Yep. So with that, this is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we will catch you in the next episode. Right.